We're starting a journey that I've been looking forward to for several weeks now, and that's a journey through 2 Corinthians. Starts today. It's going to last for years. That's right. We're just, uh, we're not in any rush, are we? It's God's Word, and so we're just going to, did you mean that in a negative way or what? It's going to take forever. Yeah. No, uh, but uh, we are so excited. This book is so rich, so rich. As we make our way through the book, we'll discover more and more the reasons why the Apostle Paul, some of his reasons for writing it. But I think as we kind of launch into this first chapter today, I'm going to take the first little bit here to give you a little background of the letter so you kind of be able to process it as we walk through it. So I want to give you a map, first of all, of where Corinth is because that's a strategic part of the book. You see where Corinth is right in the middle of the screen there. It sits on an isthmus. I practiced that word like 10 times, isthmus, is that how you say it? Isthmus, okay, which is a, a narrow piece of land that connects two larger pieces of land, and so you can see that the trade routes have to run through Corinth, either by land or by sea, and so boats would come up on either side there from the seas, and um, they had this uh, whole industry that would transfer merchandise from one boat to another, it's only four miles across. And so they would take it off, and they, you thought they would build a canal. They did finally build a canal in the 1850s, actually, uh, so you can get from one sea to the other, but back then it was just hand-carried. Sometimes they would, even if the boat was small enough, they would pull the boat across the land for four miles. And, uh, but not, needless to say, Corinth was a uh, metropolitan, uh, cosmopolitan uh, city, very, very important, especially because of the trade routes that uh, flowed through it. It made the city extremely important. Um, some people say anywhere between 500,000 to 750,000 people lived in Corinth when Paul was writing his letters to them. And it was a strategic part of Paul's church planting efforts. We also know it was a wicked, wicked place. Uh, we know that affluence had bred uh, lavish lifestyles. Uh, immorality had uh, reigned supreme. They built a temple to the goddess uh, Aphrodite was in Corinth. Uh, they staffed the temple of Aphrodite with a thousand prostitutes. And it was just a rampant expression of immorality throughout the city. Most commentators believe that there were actually four letters written by Paul to the Corinthians. And uh, two of them either didn't survive or some people think they were kind of Incorporated because Second Corinthians kind of takes a um, it kind of takes a windy path. It's not near as cohesive as all of other uh, of Paul's letters. It it addresses this and then it changes over here and then it changes over here and so a lot of people think that these lost letters really are part of Second Corinthians. We don't know that, uh, but there's some speculation amongst that. The first uh, you kind of have to transport yourself into a uh, uh, a first century Corinthian mindset to grasp what is going on here. They only knew Paul as this person who had, well, he claimed to have seen Jesus on this road to Damascus, and Jesus had told him, supposedly, that he was going to be a, an apostle, and uh, Jesus told him that he was supposed to start these churches and um, this Corinthian church was only started three years before this second letter 
was written. 1 Corinthians, the book, was written only a year after the church formation, and they were already having trouble in the church. If you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, Paul has intent in 1 Corinthians to address some real problems. Uh, the rampant sexual immorality that was not only the culture, it had worked its way into the church. Um, there was the uh, discrimination within the church. People were given better seats than others based upon their wealth and their ethnicity. Uh, they even had false teachers that came in and said, Jesus really never did rise from the dead. Uh, we should not teach that. And so 1 Corinthians targets all of those and other problems that were occurring in the church. Can you believe a church having problems? I mean, just right off the bat like that? So the other thing here in 2 Corinthians is that, uh, so you're a Corinthian in this first century mode, and uh, you've been living a life of affluence, and you hear the gospel of Christ, and this all sounds great. I'm, I have all this wealth, and I have a kind of a freedom, and now I join myself to Christ, and my expectation is, is that Jesus is just going to make all that better. He's going to protect my affluence, probably add to it. He's going to make sure that I'm well taken care of. He's going to make sure that I have all of my dreams come true. Any modern day correlations for us today? Paul realizes that the distortion of the gospel was happening in the Corinthian church. They were using Christ as a method for self-gain in a worldly way. And so he continually calls them back to the place of the cross. The death of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice for their sins, of which they were participating in as believers in Christ. It says we have died with him to the old life, to the old system of self-satisfaction. And we've walked into this heavenly kingdom of his presence and his majesty and because of the conflict of living the kingdom of heaven life in the kingdoms of this world, that there was going to, they were going to encounter some difficulty, suffering, pain, struggle from time to time. And Paul was living through that in many, many ways in some of the churches that, as this new movement was beginning to take shape. And uh, throughout the book, you're going to see Paul talk about difficulties and how God transforms them into wonderful things. One of the greatest verses of the whole book, I'm going to read as we start, uh, it's found over the 12th chapter, 9 and 10. And he has said to me, this is the apostle writing, he is Jesus here. And if you have a red letter Bible, you'll see these next words in 2 Corinthians are red because Jesus says these. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content. Get this. He says, therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He continually addresses the problems all of us will face. All of us will face. And he takes those problems and he says, uh, through Jesus Christ, we can turn those trials into spiritual triumphs. And as I read through this book, I just named the series that. 
Because over and over we see weakness made strength and we see a wounded healed and we see this miraculous work of Jesus Christ constantly transforming the lives of people. There's a lot of people in the Corinthian church though that objected to Paul. His gospel was, uh, was not what they wanted the gospel to be. They wanted Jesus to be different. And after all, they began to think, who was Paul to us? I mean, in our day and age, we kind of think Paul was pretty great, right? Well, sometimes I hear people slamming Paul, but, you know, I think he's pretty great. I think what he has to say is pretty great. But back then, who was Paul to them? He was just kind of this new guy who had come to town, and uh, he'd started this, this church and uh, presented the gospel, and people came to faith, and then what did Paul do? He left. And now he's writing letters how you guys ought to run the church. How would you like that? And so a lot of people are taking exception. And it's bringing about struggle for the apostle. So let me read the first couple of verses, say a few words, and then we'll get into the body of what I want to say, which is the third through seventh verse. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to focus just a little bit on the first verse, Uh, just a few quick points. Um, from these opening verses. Paul begins by stating his claim to say what he's going to say. I am an apostle of Christ Jesus. And then he says, by the will of God. By the will of God. This wasn't my idea he's telling them. He's saying that Jesus has met with me and Jesus has called me by the will of God to say the things that I am going to say to you. And uh, the conclusion, the point that I would make from that is that ministry positions are always God's call. Amen. Ministry positions are always up to Him. I've had many situations in my life where I've seen people decide that they wanted to do something in some kind of ministry and... uh, They would pray that God would call them to that ministry, and God never did, but what did they do anyway? Yeah, doesn't always end very well for that kind of situation. On the flip side, I've seen a lot of people that had the hand of God upon them and the call of God to certain kinds of ministries, and they said, you know, that doesn't fit with my idea of what my life plan is going to be. I don't really want to do that. It's going to interrupt what I thought would be... uh, available to me. In fact, God's call doesn't really actually pay me well enough. (laughs) I've had that excuse before. And so they they begin to um, run from God's call. And that affects them in so many different ways. If you've ever been there running from God's call, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you go and you begin to talk to God about other things in your life, and what does God continually want to talk to you about? His call. And you say, God, I understand that we're having a little bit of a fight about that, but I want to talk to you about this over here. And he says, well, let's talk about the call. And if anybody here today is putting off God's call or finding ways to avoid it, 
I just want you to remember another Bible character. His name is Jonah. And there might be a big fish in your future somewhere, right? Another point from the opening. The letter is addressed to the church of God, which is at Corinth. It is not addressed to the Corinthian church per se, as it as if the Corinthian church would be a different thing than the Philippian or the Thessalonian church. Uh, no, this is to the church of God, which in this particular situation happens to geographically be placed in the city of Corinth. And I think the wording is significant because it reveals the heart of God and how he looks at church. I thought, what if God would write a letter to the church of God in Georgetown, Texas? First of all, I think that'd be pretty cool, don't you? Yeah, I'd love to hear what he'd have to say. Right? To the church of God in Georgetown, Texas, and in our modern way, how would we respond to that? What church? Which one? Is he talking to the church of God at Grace Bible Church, or at First Baptist Church, or at First Presbyterian Church, or Faith Lutheran, or the worship place? Which church are you talking about? And what would God say? To the church of God in your city. You think about it, that has huge ramifications for how we operate. If we begin to look at church the way God looks at church, the point I make is God sees church as all those who believe in Him. No matter what building you find yourself on a Sunday. He doesn't see all these man-made divisions that we have today. He sees us, the followers of His Son, Jesus Christ. And He sees us all one. Yeah, we have different buildings because all the buildings couldn't hold everybody in the same place. So we just kind of spread out throughout the city. We influence our own neighborhoods in different places. But we're all on the same team, right? A little lukewarm, right? Yeah, I know. Okay. It means that all the one another scriptures are not just for Grace Bible Church, they're for every church. They're between churches. We need other churches. They need us. We love other churches. Amen. We serve them. We encourage them. We contribute to them. And you know what? We don't talk bad about them. Aren't you glad? Amen. They're our brothers, our sisters. We don't compete with them. We don't highlight their weaknesses or what we think they do wrong. Or we don't minimize their strengths. They belong to us. And we belong to them. I appreciate the National Day of Prayer we had this past week. It's a, it's a rare time when the, church, the whole church of Jesus Christ is invited to come together and pray together for our city and our nation. It was a great event. We participated in something called Love Georgetown. We did it for the first time last, last year in uh, October. Churches just come and serve our community. I was so glad to be a part of Grace Bible Church. We had more volunteers there than any other church. Isn't that great? I can say that to you, okay, but I don't say that outside. You know. We're doing it again this year. 
we got more churches that want to be a part. Isn't that wonderful? That's just so incredible. We've given more money than anybody else so far. Isn't that great? I can only say that here too, okay? But you get it, right? And this year, we've moved it from October to August so that we can serve our schools better before they actually have all students come in. So we're all going to join together with about 15 other churches so far and help just serve the needs of our community. And uh, we're going to have the largest pool of volunteers there, aren't we? Okay, yeah. You're thinking, I know, why did we move it from October to August for outside work, right? I mean, are you a servant or what? Come on. Come on. Okay, one other point from these opening verses. He says the letter is for the church at Corinth with all the saints throughout Achaia. The saints. So who are the saints? Who are saints? I want you to know every, every believer in Christ is a saint. Every believer in Christ is a saint. Paul addresses most all of his letters to the saints. He doesn't say for all you dirty, rotten sinners in Thessalonica. Does he? He says to all you saints in Philippi and Colossae. Because we bear the mark of the risen Christ who is holy. And the word means holy one. Now you may, don't, don't be puffed up over being a saint because it's nothing you did. It's his gift to you. We say this often, but it's, uh, I want you to, uh, I just want it to be so ingrained in us. As believers in Christ, we don't identify as sinners saved by grace as much as we identify as saints who still occasionally sin when we forget who we really are. Saints. Our sainthood is His gift to us. I know this may burst your bubble, but not a one of you ever deserved it. You you didn't merit it. He just lavished it. Okay, that was all free. Now I'm going to tell you what I really want to tell you. Okay? All right. Verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction to that we will be able to com- so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. For if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings, which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that you As you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. Well, let me just ask, have you seen a common theme in those verses? How many times does he say the word? 
the situation of Paul, he's just he's going through a struggle. Reputations being maligned. Sometimes his life is threatened. His apostleship is challenged. He's not only suffered for the gospel, but he's suffered because of the gospel and his calling to it. And yet he calls God here, the God of all comfort. Uh, Reading a commentary by Harry Ironside, he said this, there are two things of which God is said to have the monopoly. He is the God of all grace and he is the God of all comfort. Comfort. Periklesis, the Greek word. It actually means to receive encouragement. The encouragement of God. It's a a lot more than just sympathy or empathizing or poor you, I'm so sorry you're going through a difficult time. No, it is this life-giving encouragement of a person who stands alongside of us, who comes near and encourages us, supports us as a friend. And that is God's ministry into our life. I want to make this point, then I'm going to talk about it. Here's the point. God chooses comfort over a magic wand. You get that? If you think about it for a minute, we pray typically... Asking for what? A magic wand. We're we're in pain, we're in suffering, we're facing a problem, and many times we pray that God would pull out of the cupboard this magic wand and He would just fix the problem. Activate it to my situation, Lord. We think we want answers rather than closeness. I mean, okay, just think about it. A mom raising little kids. The kid comes in, just skin their knee out there. And is crying and is wounded and... uh, The mom doesn't say a word to the kid, doesn't speak any words at all, doesn't touch the kid at all, just reaches into the cupboard and grabs the magic wand and zap, the knee is fine. Go play. The next day the kid comes home and uh, his feelings are hurt. He's by the bully at school. He was walking home and the boy was making him pay a nickel to pass and uh, it's just... You weren't here last week. Go watch the video. All right. And the and the the boy, the little eight and a half year old boy, is wounded. And the mother reaches into the cupboard and grabs the magic wand and zap, and all the hurt feelings are gone. Now go play. So you be honest with me. Don't you want comfort more than a magic wand? 
closeness of a mom's love. The embrace of a father as we struggle. God understands what we're going through. And when he comforts us, there is a, a, there is a deeper joy experienced in that comfort that will be lost if he just zapped the situation. Psalm 23, the famous psalm, verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because he's going to zap it and take care of it? Transport me out of there? I fear no evil because you are just with me. You're with me. Your rod and your staff, the the correcting tool and the delivering tool, your rod and your staff, what do they do for me? They comfort me. Security. I'm not alone. It doesn't say that God will prevent the walks through the valley of the shadow of death. It says that He'll walk with us. Paraklesis is the Greek word there for comfort, and the Holy Spirit is often referred to as the paraclete. The comforter, John 14. The counselor, another translation. The supreme come-alongside friend, if you will. I remember a time during my college years when I was at a training camp in the mountains of Colorado, beautiful place, and I had just come through one of the most distressing, disappointing, hurtful situations of my life. My feelings had been severely hurt and I had contributed to the situation with my own failure. I felt my future was in great peril. What is becoming of me? And I was just as broken and wounded as I had ever been. And I remember on the side of the mountain that morning in Colorado and I was just pouring out my heart to God trying to help him understand things, <laughs> you know? You've been there, haven't you? God, this is really bad. I am really wounded. I feel like a miserable failure. And I'll never forget, I I can't adequately describe to you what happened. I just can't in words tell you. The only thing I can say is this. He came close. Close. Presence. Divine Shekinah glory, warmth. Love, not emotion. It affected me emotionally, but it wasn't that. It was the reality of closeness. 
We never got around to talking about my pitiful situation. You know what I mean, right? And I hope you understand this, but the reality of God's paraclete, Holy Spirit, come alongside presence in the midst of our suffering makes the suffering worth it. You get that? I mean, we don't want to say that. We don't want to believe that. Oh, but the the joy that we share together you don't find it other places. The sixth verse again. But we, if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. For if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. And then here is the result of comfort that I want to talk my last point about. Which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings. Effective. Energeo, that Greek word. Energeo. This, this mighty, forceful power. God's comfort is the power to patiently endure. The grief is there, the suffering, the the heartache, the pain, or whatever it is, the problem, the relationship, the finances, whatever it is that... I can walk through this because of the effective God's abiding, comforting presence. I often think of the story of Corrie ten Boom who endured a Nazi prison camp, Dutch lady. Uh, she even saw her sister die there in that camp. Uh, the juxtapositioning of uh, her daily torture in a Nazi prison camp and the way she was treated, you put that alongside the moment by moment, day by day, comforting presence of God's Holy Spirit in her life. And you get that picture in your mind of him walking through the valley of the shadow of death with her and the joy that she shares with him. And I just love reading what she says. She has a way of understanding God because of her experience. So I'm going to give you a few Corey Tim Boom quotes. She says, if you look at the world, you'll be distressed, Right? If you look within, you'll be depressed. (laughs) If you look at God, you'll be at rest. She says, hold everything in your hands lightly, otherwise it hurts when God pries your fingers open. (laughs) We've been there, haven't we? And then she says, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. You may think from time to time that you have the one that he can't meet. This, is, this, this pain is too, too deep. It's, this is the big one. This is beyond the reach of his love, and I'm here to tell you it's not. See Austin Miles, he's a pharmacist. At some point, he decided he's going to try his hand at writing hymns. It wasn't too long before he quit, becoming a, quit practicing pharmacy. 
And he tells the story of how one of his songs came into being. He was reading through John 20, the story of the resurrection morning with Mary Magdalene going with the spices to the tomb and finding it empty and being confused and in grief. And he writes this, he says, I seem to be standing at the entrance of a garden looking down a gently winding path shaded by all these olive branches. There was a woman in white with her head bowed, hand clasping her throat as if to choke back her sobs. And she slowly walked into the shadows and uh, it was Mary Magdalene. As she came onto the tomb upon which she placed her hand, her, she bent over to look in and then she ran away weeping. John came in a flowing robe, appearing uh, to look at the tomb. Then came Peter, who just ran right by him into the tomb, and John followed him. As they departed, Mary reappeared, leaning her head upon her arm at the tomb, and she was just weeping. Turning herself, she saw Jesus standing there, and so did I. I knew it was he. She fell to her knees before him and she had her arms outstretched and she looked into his face and cried, Rabboni! And Miles writes, I awakened in sunlight and I gripped my Bible with my muscles tense, my nerves vibrating under the very inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I just pad and paper got and wrote as quickly as the words could be formed. I come to the garden alone. The dew is still on the roses, and the voice I hear that falls on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And He walks with me. And He talks with me. And He tells me, what? I am His own. And the joy that we share there together, as we just tarry there, what? None other has ever known. Michael Wells, he says it so well, there's no pain so deep that the closeness of Jesus cannot heal. You may be here today and think that... uh, What you need from God is for Him to work out your problems. You may be here thinking that God really needs to change the way people treat me. (laughs) He needs to provide better for me. Maybe there's people here today who say, I just wish God would take away my addiction. I just don't want to be tempted anymore. You want Him to fix your problem, yet God knows that what you really need is divine comfort, to know that He is greater than your problem. He wants you to know that He will be your friend, He'll put His arm around you and He'll walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death and you need not fear because He's with you. And because He's near, you will change. Temptation will be weakened because he is so real and he is so filled with love. And he has captured your attention that the temptation is just lost or is losing its allure. And he will walk with you. 
And he will talk with you. And he'll tell you, hey, you're my very own. And the joy that you're going to share as you abide there, let me put it this way, you can't know it any other way. I want you to pray. Father, I know that there are people in this congregation today and there are people who uh, are going through situations, be external and internal. And there's an angst, there's a frustration, or there is a anger or a depression. And they have decided what it is that they need from you. And Father, I'm just praying today that you would come close. They would know that there is a God who loves them so deeply that you are willing to spend time with them very personally. You want to spend time with them in such a way that they know that you understand that you are their shepherd And you are their shepherd to the place that they shall not want anything else. That you so fill them and supply them. And uh, Oh, there will be times where you will lead them beside green pastures and cause them to lie down. And there will be times where you will just be there as they walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And you will comfort them and you will embrace them. So, Father, we just... uh, Pray for the ministry of your spirit, the supreme comforter. We thank you, Father.